Spirit Radio Podcasts. Therese Davy joins me on the line for this week's Home and Lifestyle Tips. Good morning to you, Therese. Good morning, Wendy, and how are you with your lovely bake? I must try that. I've, I've noticed one who tries it and uses turnips and carrots, but it sounds gorgeous, and your healthy option is just really, really clever. I hope you enjoy it when you get to it. Well, the proof will be in the pudding or the tasting tonight, so we'll have to report back on that. Now, this is something that we do talk about every year, but it's something that is important to talk about every year because every year uh, we make the same mistakes, and that's in relation to gift vouchers. They're still great gifts, yes. Yes, absolutely. There are still great gifts, and for the people who have everything and don't want anything, and, and that, and, and I love them. But I mean, this week I've been maddened by the fact that I didn't realise that some of the vouchers, um, you can lose money on them, and if you don't use them within the 12 months. And I know I remind people twice a year to go and check their vouchers, but I suppose I fell for it and made the mistake myself only last week. And I was a month out of date for some of them. And I started losing three euro voucher. So on a 150 euro voucher, I've lost 30 euro already. Wow. So gosh, that really, it seems totally unfair, doesn't it? Absolutely. And Conor Pope, and, and, and that's where my tips come from, talks about this in the Irish Times, as I'd say every year in his Price Watch column. And people have tried and they've raised with the government. The government say they will do something. But it's worth £350 million a year, that whole voucher scheme, vouchers and buying vouchers. And very, very poor legislation to protect the customers. And the terms and conditions, you've really got to read them carefully. But there's a couple of things you need to do when you're buying them. And um, uh, there's no control over unused vouchers or you can't get credit notes back sometimes or you can't get money back. So it's very free um, and open for the retailers to do with what they want with the vouchers. And some of them are very good and they will honour them when when they're out of date. But some do's and don'ts. And the first one is don't assume there's no expiry date on the voucher. So check and double check. Absolutely. Checking the terms and conditions, and that was my fault. I didn't read the back of the little I know, the envelope small print, card that yeah. comes. And actually, yes. do you know what? It's, it's, I actually think it's good for business when there isn't. I ordered a few vouchers there for presents from a beauty salon near me, and there was a lovely handwritten note with the voucher saying, there is no expiry date on these, so feel free to enjoy whenever you like. And I thought, that's just lovely. And there are other retailers who do that, and they're wonderful. So, but, but just please read the small, 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 small print in the terms and conditions. Do tell the person you're giving the voucher to about these terms and conditions as far as you know about them. Maybe you put in the small little handwritten notes in, please check this or use this by June or something. Hope you enjoy it. You know, you put a little note in with your voucher to remind the person to put it on their calendar to use. Don't expect a shop to replace a voucher if you lose it. It's just like losing cash. So keep the vouchers somewhere safe. And that's one of my old broken record things. Keep them together in a place you know and the rest of the family know where they are. Buy one of those small plastic wallets and mark them and put the dates in the calendar. Do buy your vouchers from um, reputable shops or, or retailers. Um, because if, I love this line. If you spend €300 euro on a voucher sold by a bloke who's selling TVs from the back of the van, do not be surprised if cashing in proves tricky. Yeah, oh, I and mean, if it's, if it's written on a piece of, you know, uh, scra- scraggly paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, half faded and the ink will run or disappear after two weeks. 
don't expect to get anything back if you get the voucher from a store that closes. And we've all heard those stories about House of Frasers. Um, you'll, be, you'll be in the bottom of the queue. And do register your claim for the value of your voucher with any liquidator if it does happen, but you will be on the bottom of the queue. It's unlikely, um, basically, that you're going to get anything back. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't forget that some vouchers start imposing service charges, and this is where I fell down, if they're not used within a certain time, time frame, and they can drain the entire gift card remarkably quickly. And that goes for the one-for-all vouchers as well. If you buy 50 or 30 euro, you'd be surprised how much the 149 erodes into you or whatever they're charging at the moment but into actually, your little card. Just as you mentioned, the one-for-all vouchers, because I, I get them every year, mm-hmm. and, just, and I know a lot of companies give them to their employees and stuff at different mm-hmm. times of the year is always asked because if there's so, there's obviously there's an app and stuff and it tells you where you can use them but there's been a good few times where I'm just getting nothing exciting but just something I need somewhere and I say do you take one for all and a lot of the time they say yes and you, you're able to kind of use it rather than having to use your cash that month so do ask sometimes and um, absolutely I know you're saying about the expiries but sometimes all is not lost Therese and I had to share this with you as soon as we're talking about vouchers today I got a voucher on one of you know the online websites pigs backer group on one of those for an afternoon mm-hmm. tea in a place close to me I actually got it for my husband for his birthday in October and to be fair to pigs back they send you a reminder saying this voucher is going to expire they do try to make sure that you use it anyway right. it was expiring the next day there was no way we were going to get to use it so we rang up the the place in question that was doing the afternoon tea and the manager said hey my name is Shay you use that voucher whenever you want just tell them I said that it's grand now I know that's rare and you can't bank on it but I suppose the point is if something is expired and you ju- don't just throw it in the bin do ring up the place and see if they might honour it they might they may or they may not but it's worth the phone call Absolutely, the personal contact and tell them your story and why and why you can't, why and why you cannot do it. An afternoon tea is a lovely voucher. We had one last Sunday. We were just using up a voucher before the month was end in a place close to you, Wendy, and it was a lovely experience in the afternoon in daylight and watch the gardens and things out a window. Great little gift, actually, too. Um, and do use your vouchers naturally as quickly as possible and, and that means you won't forget them. Don't sit on them. Just get, get out there and use them. As you say, the one-for-all vouchers can be used in the supermarkets, can be used sometimes for um, meals out, it can be used for theatre cinemas. The list is exhaustive. Do check where you can use them. They are very versatile and as you say, many employers are giving them out because the, the allowances have been increased for the gifts you can give to your staff since last year. So some people may have them. But please use them quickly. And another place to go shopping and we won't get a voucher for it but you and I love it don't we Wendy the National Craft Fair is on this weekend yes I, I love I love sampling the, the food hall there is absolutely amazing and you know what's great if you've been to the National Craft Fair before obviously there's lots of suppliers that are just making beautiful handmade gifts really unique stuff and then also the, the artisan kind of food and stuff and we, we're because we've been to it a few times and obviously you can look on the website and you see you can see what vendors are going to be there but even when we were planning kind of Christmas Day in St. Stephen's Day we said oh remember that cheese guy we'll go and get this this and this from him and we can bring that there as a gift and it's really lovely to be able to support local business and of course toddle around and, and sample stuff although Therese I have no doubt this year as I have another baby on the way that the one thing I can't eat is unpasteurised cheese and my husband gets great, uh, gets great smiles out of eating the delicious unpasteurised <laughs> cheese in front of me 
and we bumped into each other there last year. But it's great to meet the craftspeople, as you say, and give the money directly to the maker. I think that's wonderful. And the food sections, the, the burn balsamics is a lovely different food item to give someone. Naturally, cordials have the lovely range of non-alcoholic cordial, and I love that cranberry and orange one. If, if, you, if you have people who want an alternative drink and are, are not drinkers, it's lovely to get alternative drinks. Foods of Apple and Rye have a great selection of gluten-free, dairy-free food, which I got from my mother-in-law last year. Got a, made up a lovely hamper myself. And, of course, Barry John sausages from Cavan. And do not be tempted with the chocolate one. Please don't be tempted with that one. But also support your local mar- markets at home or wherever you live around the country. You don't have to come to Dublin to the craft fair. But you'd be surprised what you get there. And there's some great value in lovely gifts. But just on the craft fair, there's 10% discount on the opening day and Wednesday. And that's always worthy. That's the day I go and... Um, you get your 10% off on that. But on the subject of, of checking the dates and checking local markets and things, church Christmas fairs. Support your local Christmas fair if you can. Keep an eye out for the signs and the dates and put the dates into the calendar. I got the most well beautiful um, wreath yesterday, uh, Christmas wreath at our local church fair. It was, it's beautiful. It's hanging on the door now. I absolutely love it. Handmade. Gorgeous. It's not lovely as well, and supporting your local church, our charity, because sometimes some of these fairs aren't just for the church, they're for our local charity or the share with the charity. And um, the carol service and tree, tree festivals are beautiful things. If you have one in your locality, please go and visit a tree festival if you see one advertised anywhere. They're gorgeous and they're fundraisers for charity as well as, as the carol services. And put that in, in your calendar. That's, that's your job of the week, by the way. Calendar dates is your job of the week. I can live with that. And the last postal dates are creeping up already. 6th of December this week for USA and rest of the world. Parcels to Europe on the 13th of December. So that's definitely two dates. Don't even put them into your calendar. You need to get cracking on them because you don't have time to put them in the calendar and come back to them. Um, Another date to put in your calendar is the MCT test if you bought your car in January. From the end of next week, you can book um, the January dates because I've tried to get mine and I do mine on the 1st of January or the 2nd of January every year when I'm home on holidays and I have someone to collect and drive me there. That's why it's handy to do it then. But you normally have four to five weeks in advance of the date and the date they're currently taken up to the 20th of December. So just put the NCT checklist in there. And finally, stocking up. Now, we've done the car, Wendy. We've done the first aid kit. I had to go into town last night and get extra ones because this is the time of year people make things and hang things and little accidents happen for the first aid kit, so you need your plasters. And we've emptied the cupboards and freezers. We have all the space, don't we, Wendy? Don't all our cust- don't all our listeners have all the yeah, space? Yeah, yeah, now yeah, yeah. I'll re- just say yes. I'll just say yes. Yeah, yeah, yes on behalf of the nation. So it's time now to make a list. And the supermarket magazines of this time of year, apart from having lovely recipes, they also have a checklist, which is dead handy on things you might need to buy. And there's vouchers out there. Tesco are running the 10 euro vouchers in the, in the independent these days, and they're great. Duns are now slipping their 10 pound voucher loose in, into magazines and papers. So you'll see that one knocking around as well. But sometimes it's difficult to get up to the thresholds they want you to spend. The 25 euro, the super value, or the 50 euro with Tesco or Duns. So now's the time you can start buying things that will hold, like the sellotape, the battery, the tinfoil, the peppercorns, the cloves. The matches, fire logs, you can get them in the supermarket. Selection boxes. Only your hand lays. Go on. Selection boxes, sweeties, soft drinks. <laughs> 
and, and the sweet the sweet wars are unbelievable. It's now three tins for a tenner in Tesco. Crackers, now they often get forgotten and you go mad with the relatives who are actually coming in the door and you know you bought them and you don't know where you remember where you stored them, like the Christmas napkins, you forgot where you store them. And IKEA have lovely small ones if you need just small ones. Other things you can stick in there like the stock cubes, the Bisto, that sometimes gets forgotten. Trifle making stuff, if that's something you can do. And then there's all the things that won't go off if you need to make up to the 50 euro voucher. The loo roll, the kitchen roll, the washing up, they won't go off. And so um, it's time to do the list. That is the and job of putting the calendar dates. And, and check it twice, check it with, twice. and check it with everyone in, in the house because they might have something they might want to add to the list. And check it with your neighbours and elderly neighbours and family because they mightn't be able to get out in all this wind and rain and they might need some stamps or some gifts or some fuel or something. Therese, so don't forget so to forget them too. No more jobs. That's enough jobs now. We'll chat to you next enough, week, yeah. Therese. Well, you may have heard or indeed you might have seen the video footage from the doll on Thursday night which shows Fianna Fáil TD Lisa Chambers saying abortion regret is a makey-uppy thing. She went on to say that it doesn't exist. Now, she has since apologised for any hurt caused regarding this particular comment. Well, our next guest has a very personal story and has a lot of experience of helping women who experience abortion regret. And we just wanted to make sure that these women are talked to because it's, it's, it's actually has amazed me as a journalist to see and I couldn't, I was trying to think of a comparison this morning and I thought to myself if a pro-life TD had gotten up in the doll and said women who say they don't regret their abortions are makey-uppy and don't exist, I would be fairly certain that it would be garnering a lot more media coverage than Lisa Chambers' comments that I imagine would be very, very hurtful to many, many women who feel just that. On the line to tell us a little bit more and give us some of her reaction, we have Bernadette Goulding, who's involved with Women Hurt, and also Rachel's Vineyard as well. Bernadette, thanks for joining us on the programme. You're very welcome. I'm very happy to be here this morning. So what did you make of Lisa Chambers' comments then? I suppose initially there was anger, but then, of course, I'm, I'm quite used to that type of rebuff from from the pro-choice advocates. You know, I've been doing this work for maybe 15, 16, 17 years, I suppose, really. I've been working in abortion recovery as a result of my own abortion experience. And I can take that kind of um, attack from, from people like her, but I'm thinking of the women out there, the vulnerable women who are suffering in silence, who are silenced by shame and grief at the loss of their children, who haven't got a voice, how damaged and hurt they must be feeling after her, her um, what this lady said, you know. <clears throat> and the, I wonder to myself, had Lisa Chambers or indeed, maybe you can tell us, Bernadette, did any TDs meet with yourself or, or women involved with Women Hurt during the referendum or afterwards? I've met some over the years and I've, met, I've, I've been to Leinster House and I've brought women there with me and spoken to some of the TDs and, um, and indeed on friendly terms, many of those have voted against the abortion bill, you know, but... Um, it's like a, a, we were silent in this whole campaign. I mean, they, they weren't very willing to have people like me speak out at all. As you know, we stood in Grafton Street during the, before the referendum, myself and three or four other women. And uh, we, our, our, uh, our stories are met with disdain. And, and you know, just, we're just being dismissed, you know, airbrushed out of the whole, whole picture altogether. But um, clearly they have an agenda. And, you know, they don't care about women's feelings or... You know, protecting their ideology is more important than helping women who might regret their choices. 
I, I know, and as you said, Bernadette, you yourself experienced abortion regret, and you've helped many women over the last 17 years who have had a similar experience. Yes. And I, I, I have to say, just in ter- you, you hit, hit on something there where you can imagine a woman who perhaps has very recently had an abortion, it's still yes. extremely raw. I saw yeah. a woman, a young woman, posted online, basically very upset and very angry and, and shared her story. Tell us yes. a little bit about your experience, and, and you might share the experience of other women that you've met and helped along the way. Sorry, could you explain that a little bit? You might, my line isn't you great, might yeah. share with us just a little bit of your experience of abortion oh, regret. Yeah, yeah. When I suffered in silence, I suppose not as many years ago after my abortion, initially I thought I was doing the right thing. That should go away, that I'd have this abortion and my life would get back to normal. I was absolutely convinced that would be the case. But of course it wasn't the case. I was in denial for a number of years, you know. And I suppose like many women out there today who are, are in denial and would be uh, pro-abortion, like that I was. It was a woman's choice, you know, her decision, you know, nobody was being hurt, um, blah, blah, blah. Of course, to have an abortion, you have to dehumanize the unborn child. You have to pretend it's, there's nothing there, it's cells. And of course, that's, you're, there's many people out there willing to feed into that denial. And I was in that denial for years. There's nothing there. It was only a bunch of cells. But it's amazing that, you know, the pain and the suffering I endured for many years, I didn't attribute to, to the abortion at all. You know, I, I thought was, I was other reasons. I built a wall of denial around myself until eventually the pain was so bad I had to face up to what I'd done. I had to, I had to look at my life honestly and say, look, my, after having three children and experiencing the joy of their birth and, you know, discovering I was pregnant initially, I, immediately I was pregnant. I was expecting a baby. There was no question about it. You know, it may be four or five weeks missing my period. But it's amazing when you're pregnant and the child isn't wanted or rejected, it's not a baby. It's a bunch of cells. And, of course, that's what you're being told. There's nothing there. It's okay. But to be healed after my abortion, when I came to healing, I had to rehumanize my baby. I had to acknowledge that there was a little heart beating under my heart when that little one was aborted that there was a member of my family now gone forever. Generations to come had been wiped out. And it was in that realization and accepting and acknowledging, without blaming anyone else, only my, I made the decision, you know, and acknowledging that, yes, there was a life there. That was my baby. That was my child, part of my family. You know, and then healing can come when we're willing to share that, you know. But as I say to women out there, I wouldn't advise any woman to go public or share her story until she's been through a healing program. It's very important. And you've helped many women over the years do just that, Bernadette. Tell us oh, my goodness, stories. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of women, not just in Ireland, but as you probably know, I've been to many different countries with training teams up in Rachel's Vineyard uh, retreats. Uh, England, like, uh, countries like uh, Scotland, Malta, the Faroe Islands, Hungary, Korea, Lebanon, Slovenia, Croatia, South Africa, to name but a few. And I've met women of faith and no faith, people of different backgrounds, different professions, it's no respecter of persons or religious denominations. It's a human thing. It's a universal experience. Women experience the pain and the loss of their babies. We're grieving for our children, not punches of cells or products of conception. How do you feel, Bernadette, about um, the apology that Lisa Chambers made? Oh, for made? goodness sake, such a weak, lame apology. Forget, I don't even, I just dismiss it completely. I mean, she said it's a makey-uppy thing. I mean, what an offence to women like myself and other women out there. How hurtful is that? You can't imagine. You know, it's just a knife in your heart that she's denying your need to grief. Well, of course, that's how pro-abortion people do react, you know. They deny. It's like after a woman has an abortion, usually people will say, are you okay for anyone she's shared her story with? And she usually say, I am, I'm, I'm fine. And the usual thing is, how do you cope with it? I just 
try not to think about it. So obviously the family members or those who know her will think, well, she's fine. And and that's the, 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 the way people think. They think, well, I know someone who's had an abortion and she's fine, you know, and, and they promote abortion. Some people promote it in that way. But because she's silent and saying nothing and wanting not to remember it, that doesn't mean she's okay. There's a heart going on inside there. I say it for many women. Maybe some, there are some women probably out there who who uh, can, you know, have abortions and manage to bury it, and it doesn't bother them. But I am only interested in the women who come to me and seeking help, who are hurting. And there are hundreds and thousands of women out there suffering in silence, you know. And I've seen that abortion hurts women. Not all women, but many women. Do you and feel... the individuals that I've come to know in my work with post-abortion recovery are women whom I truly love and respect, you know. Do you feel, Bernadette, I mean, we've had the Oireachtas Health Committee discussions in the Dáil. Has there been any meaningful discussion given to abortion regret? Oh, none at all whatsoever, you know. I don't know if you've seen any of the times I was interviewed on the, when I was an invited guest in the prime time or any of those. You're, you're just not given the airtime. You're, you're just dismissed, you know. Uh, they say, oh, uh, these women who, you know, suffer after abortion, they must have had uh, problems prior to the abortion. They must have suffered from depression, etc., etc., which is a lot of nonsense. I was a very happy person before my abortion. I didn't suffer from depression or anything. Abortion just steals your peace. First of all, it ends the life of your unborn child, and it steals your peace. You just feel like you've no, you, you've no right to grieve, you know. And many women hang on to that grief and that pain. It's the only thing we have left of our, of our aborted children, you know. What would you say, Bernadette, and I'm thinking specifically of, um, you know, a woman who might have been hearing our discussion or heard those comments and, and, and is hurt and is looking for healing, is looking for hope. What would your advice be there? Oh, for God's sake, give, give me a call. There are, there are many other groups out there. I don't know, there, there are different programs. But for me, Rachel's Vineyard is the key one, you know. Call me because there is help available and you can be healed from this awful pain. Realistically, you're never going to forget an abortion, but you can move on in your life. I mean, you can't change the past, but you can start from now and change the, the ending, you know. Can't, can't change the beginning. I think C.S. Lewis once said that. But you can start from now and change how it, the story ends. But, you know, there is hope and there is healing. And I've... I've it's so many women that have gone through my weekends now and it's changed their whole lives, you know. And you and great good can come from it, you know. Bernadette, do you wish and, and perhaps you were told, but before you had your abortion, were you told that there about, you know, the procedure itself or were oh, you told about the could I, I was be, told there was nothing there, that it was a very simple procedure that I'd be just fine afterwards. Nobody nobody stood beside me and said, look, there's a baby. Nobody, I, was, I had no one to support me. I was actually, I'd moved over to England. I was working in England. I was 19 years old. And I, I suppose, I don't, I, I, didn't, I don't know if I even realized there was such a thing as abortion when it was introduced to me. I was actually suffering from severe morning sickness and ended up passing out on the streets in London one day and being, I was in the hospital. And there, for the first time, my pregnancy was, the doctor told me I was pregnant. I hadn't been to see a doctor until then, you know. And um, I was admitted uh, because I was suffering from dehydration. And a young doctor came to me one evening and he said to me, you know, would you, you know, do you want to be pre-? I said, I don't want to be pregnant. At that time, and the place I was in, and, you know, there's a, a great psycho, psychiatrist in America, I think Frederica Matthews Greer, and she said, a woman, a pregnant woman seeking an abortion is like an animal caught in a trap who will gnaw off its own leg to get free. And I can honestly say that's how I felt because I was terrified of bringing shame on my family, of being a single mother. There's so many fears surrounding it. Fear is the main motivation surrounding an abortion decision. And he, he told me that it was going to be, it was okay, you'll be fine afterwards. And there was the beginning of the lies of abortion. The word baby wasn't mentioned, just cells, nothing there, absolutely, you know, lies. And that, that lie is still being 
being promoted in, in the Indy abortion facilities, you know. Bernadette, thanks so much for just sharing with us a little bit of your story and it was important to hear your voice this morning. Um, is it fair to say women's groups and, and various uh, you know, women who would call themselves advocates for women's rights haven't rushed to your defence on this issue? Oh, not at all. I mean, they're, they, obviously they're not of the same ideology as me. They say, like you know, the Women's Council of Ireland, that they care about women you know, and they speak for women, they fight for women. Well, obviously not for women like myself, who regret our abortions. We're seen as, as a betrayal to the cause, you know. But, you know, I, just for any woman or man out there, and I'm not, it's not just a woman's issue, it's a men's issue. There are many men out there suffering in silence. Beautiful men really devastated, their lives ruined because of an abortion that they didn't want, because of an abortion they paid for. Whatever the reason, afterwards, you know, the, the aftershock, I suppose, of abortion, when the realisation hits that that was my child, my, my baby's life was ended. But for any woman or man out there, I'd say to you, please call. There is hope and there is healing. And you can be healed of this awful pain. Bernadette, thank you so much for joining us on You're the program welcome. this morning. That's Bernadette Gilding, involved with Women Hurt and Rachel's Vineyard. If you want to get in touch with Rachel's Vineyard, their website is rachelsvineyard.ie and they really do try to help men and women who are suffering after abortion to, to move on to have healing and hope. <laughs> I imagine that many people listening at the moment perhaps do not have any pension provision whatsoever. Are you getting nervous? Are you thinking, you know, if you're perhaps maybe in your 30s, 40s, are you thinking down the line, are you like me? Are you scratching your head and you're wondering, is there going to be a state pension at all? Well, there's actually a government plan for what's known as auto-enrolment for pensions. What is it, you say? How would it actually work? And is it a good idea? Well, on the line to help us with some of these questions, we have Owen McGee of Prosperous Financial. You might have also seen Owen on a TV show on RT called How to Be Good with Money. So hopefully he'll help us do just that this morning morning help us be better with our money. Good morning, Joan. Morning, how are you? And how to be good with money actually doesn't start so the tenth. No, sorry, I got it wrong and we just talked about it on the air. It's Monday morning, (laughs) mommy brain, this crowded house has been on. You might have seen me on this crowded house, which is Brendan Courtney's show. And you will see me on from the tenth of January onwards on RT one um, half eight in the evening and that's one that one's called How to Be Good with Money and I'm flying solo without Brendan for the first time so we'll see how that one goes well listen um, you're just you're just everywhere it's hard to keep up with you so you can forgive me for that but they've seen your face on the telly someplace where they're telling yeah. people about looking after their finances better so yeah. let's talk Absolutely. about auto-enrolment and what is it so auto-enrolment let's actually take a step back for a second so really what it is the pension and the government's one of their solutions to try and solve the pension problem but what is the pension problem the pension problem is, is that 54% of us in this country who are working have no pension at all. Now, if you strip out public sector workers, it's actually two-thirds of us in the private sector don't have a pension so at all. A, so a we huge number of people that are relying on the state whenever they retire. Yeah, they're relying on the state. And that's a major problem because actually at the moment, if you think about it, the state pension's worth about €12,700. It's not to be snubbed. It is significant amount of money um, and in fact if you want to buy it in the private sector if you, if you want to just go and, and, and buy yourself a state pension and you had a cheque to write you'd probably have to write a cheque for around 400,000 euros to buy that for yourself when you retired to buy that 12,700 euros but the problem with it is, is that the government paid state pensions from social welfare that's where they get the old age pension from and where do they get the social welfare money from? It's from everybody paying PRSI. 
So people who are working pay PRSI. It goes into the social welfare pot, and the government used the social welfare pot to pay for old age pensions, but also to pay for um, all the other social welfare um, allowances and, and benefits that are paid out too. So it's not just the social welfare pot is used for pensions and other things. Okay, Owen, problem- you're, you're, you're the finance expert here, but I don't think it takes an expert to kind of go, okay, we've got an ageing population, Yep. Uh, not enough young people to, to fund the pensions for that ageing population. There's going to be a shortfall. There is going to be a shortfall because when you look at the numbers, they're staggering. So at the moment, there are five people working, paying into that social welfare pot for every one person who's retired. By the time 2050 gets here, there'll be two people working for every one person retired. It's not sustainable. In fact, when we have clients here in Prosperous Financial if they are under the age of 40, we completely ignore state pension. We assume it's not going to happen. And if they're over the age of 40, we have this conversation with them and they make a decision for themselves as to whether they want to include it or not. Now, to be honest, once people start looking at the numbers, they start saying, no, it's just not going to happen and I'm not going to include it. So it is interesting in terms of um, where the numbers are going to go. But it's not only just the numbers. Think about... The fact, like if you remember back to the global financial crisis, one of the defences that the government has of the day, and, and even not just of the day, but subsequent days, the other governments that came in, so this is not in any way a threat to any one party or any one government, it was, it's happening all over the world, it's the same everywhere, sure it's not just us. Well, believe me, this day's pension and this old age pension is happening all over the world, it's not just us, and it will be a defence. So it's a big problem because people do, like, the, the big problem with pensions is, is that we know, and, and, and psychologists have looked at this, we use a particular part of our brain to think about ourselves in the future, right? So if you sit there now, Wendy, and you think about yourself when you retire at 65 or 68 or 79, whatever age is going to be, Who knows? when you start to think about yourself, you use a particular part, a physical part of your brain, I don't know, the front left part of your brain or wherever it is, Right. If you think about somebody else, so if you're sitting there now and you think about me, it's actually the same physical part of your brain. So in other words, your brain thinks that you are somebody else when you retire. So how do you convince your brain to not go out this weekend and use that money and put it into a pension for yourself when your brain doesn't even believe that yourself at 65 years of age is yourself at someone else altogether. Do you get the point I'm trying to make? Yeah, we, we don't think, we, 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 it's very difficult to convince ourselves to give up something today in order to benefit something in the future that we don't even believe is for us. Then is auto-enrollment the answer to some of these woes? So auto-enrollment and what it is, so this has been implemented across countries throughout the world, and the UK most recently in 2012 introduced it. And what it does is, is at the moment, if you start a job, you walk into the job, and oftentimes for the first six months, if there, even if there is a pension scheme in the job, for the first six months it would be standard enough you don't join the pension scheme until you're out of probation. And you finish your probation, and someone in HR or, or your if it's a smaller company, the company owner comes to you and says, listen, you're out of your probation, well done, we really want you to stay, and actually now you're entitled to join the pension scheme. And you kind of sit back, oh yeah, that might be a bad idea, what do I do? Well, if you want to join, you need to sign, we'll, we'll get you to meet the, the person who does the pensions, and you need to sign up for it. Okay? And you do that. Now, what we found is, given the numbers earlier on, over half of us never bother. Even if there's a pension scheme available to us, the, the numbers are very, very low. Right? What auto-enrollment does is when you start working, you automatically go into the pension scheme without signing any paperwork. 
And in fact, if you don't want to join the pension scheme, you then have to fill out paperwork not to join. And what about so you, the, that's the employee, what about the employer? The employer ha- will have to provide the pension scheme. Not only that, the employer will have to contribute to the pension scheme too, based on, now, and, sorry, I'm not just saying that as a matter of fact, this is all in consultation at the moment. So what's on the table at the moment that the employer will have to pay into it and the employee will have to pay into it. And this is how it's worked in other jurisdictions as well. So New Zealand and Australia and the Germans and, and the UK, they've all introduced a system whereby the employer and the employee both sign up. to. They don't even sign up to it. It starts automatically. It's just kind of part of the package. It's almost seen as, as another tax. It's not a tax, I know, because you're going to get it's going into a pension pot. But at the end of the day, it's going to affect your take home net pay for now, for the present. Has it worked in other countries? And do you think it will work here, Owen? I think, I think the best one we can look at is, is that in the UK, they were at 47%. We're at 46%. So they were at 47% what we call participation. People who have pensions. We're at 46, but they were at 47 in 2012 before they introduced us. They're introducing it on a phased basis now, and they're not fully rolled out yet, but they're hitting kind of 65, 70% now. In countries that are well established with this, they have it at around 85, 90% coverage now, participation now. So it has worked in other countries to get people involved in it, but it, there is a big risk here, Wendy, in that when you think about it, what's, what, what the government have now come out looking for contributions from industry and consultation with industry and anybody, in fact, that it was, it's closed now, they come out saying, this is what we're thinking of doing. Can we have some feedback from whoever wants to give us feedback? And around middle of November was the, the, the day. And what they, they've kind of said, these are the type of things we're looking at. So, for example, one of the things that we have, we do know is a problem is in other countries the 85, 90% of people who are paying into pension kind of feel, oh, yeah, no, I pay into a pension, box ticked, I don't need to worry about it anymore, right? And what we're talking about doing, getting up to here is potentially over, with the, with the current setup, what they're talking about doing is getting up to 6% and 6%. So 6% from you and 6% from your employer going into your pension on a year-to-year basis when it's fully rolled out. And that's 12%, Okay. Now, what we know from people in, who take out pensions for themselves is they usually start at around 11%. So they start at much higher because they've gone and worked out the calculations to see how much do I need to pay into my pension. And they start to put in a much higher amount than government are now suggesting. And what government have to be really careful of here is, is how powerful their suggestion is. So the other, like an even more straightforward example of that is, is if auto-enrollment won't happen unless you're 23 years of age or more, now, what I, what I think that sends a very strong signal to the 18-year-old starting out and work. Oh, you don't need a pension. Your government told me I don't. Yeah, it's, That's a big problem. And why 23? Like, is it because oh, most people or people go to college at 18 for four years? Most people go for four years and therefore 23 is the perfect age. I don't know why 23 is chosen. And to me, it doesn't make sense. I think it sends a really, really bad message. So you can get caught out in two ways. I remember years ago jumping into a taxi and the taxi driver asked me what do you do and at the time I was working for one of the big pension companies and I said yeah I work for such and such and they said um, oh yeah I have a pension it's a great one it only costs me 50 quid a month and I'm like oh someone has just not explained to this taxi driver how this actually works what you put in is what you get out effectively the government are doing this too you need to put in 6 and 6 that's 6% and 6% and people believe that it's enough and that's a big concern for me and I'm sure for the rest of the other people in, in the industry that people just are going to have this box ticked and there's some of the messages there. The, 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 the 
other big concern I would have is that if you're 20 years of age or even 23 years of age starting off a pension for the first time, you're not going to be touching this for 40 plus years. Right? It's going to be away for a very, very long time. And I can see what government are trying to do, but what they've introduced is, is they've introduced low-risk funds, medium-risk funds, and that's it. They're not going, giving anybody the option to go in, sorry, in their consultation, the suggestion is they're not going to offer any high-risk funds. Where for some people, they might say, okay, if they, if they are starting at the 23 age, I'm young, I can afford to take a bit more risk. Obviously, if someone is starting in their kind of 40s, 50s, would be a bit more hesitant. So, you know, you can see that there's, and there's different types of investors, obviously. There are different types of investors, but why, like what governments are trying to do, or what the suggestion here is that they're, that what they're going to do here is, is make sure that there are statistics out there that show you if you start off your pension at 23 years of age and five years later you get a big, massive temporary decline or market crash and you get white, a lot of people do feel, they, the, the statistics show us that a lot of people will pull away from the pension and never go back to it. I got burnt, I'm never going to touch it again. And I can see that governments are trying to avoid that situation by only going with low and medium funds. And I think, Owen, it's a good point because there's probably a lot of people, I don't know, maybe in their 30s, where they look at their parents, right, and and their parents had been investing in a pension for years, the crash happened and they lost a lot in their pension and it makes you very nervous about it. Just to ask you, for people who are listening, um, and you made the point of, look, at if you're um, under 40, don't be relying on the state pension. So for those people who are listening saying, I am under 40, I don't have any pension, what, what's your advice to them? Invest and forget. Start at anything you can. And you just need to, you start it off, you put the money into pension. You actually should take as much risk as you are willing to take, right? And this is where government are really restricting in this. But you put the money in, you start it off at a level that's comfortable to you, and you turn up the volume on a regular basis. Now, automatically, it'll go up in line with inflation once, inflation once a year. But I would suggest to you that every two or three months, you, you just increase how much you're putting into it. And once you've set up the investment property at the start, and you know that you've got a good investment portfolio and it's designed properly, forget about it. Don't go checking it. If you've got 30 years to retirement, it's going to happen about six times where we have a minus 30%, where we have a, a market correction, a temporary decline, a market crash, call it whatever you want. Every three to five years, we have one of them. Accept it. Just keep putting the money in during it and forget about it. Like, think about 2008. If you had 100,000 euros in 2008 and you invested in the stock markets, whether that be in pension or other, or, or, or non-pension money, right? And you put 100,000 euros or even 10,000 euros, doesn't matter. You put the money away and 18 months later, we had the biggest crash. Over the next 18 months, we had the biggest crash ever. Your 100,000 euros was worth 46,000 euros if you were 100% invested in shares. Now, a lot of people's gut reaction to that is, is I'm going to pull the plug. I'm going to run away. That's the, what people feel like doing. But the right thing to do is just stick with it. Hold on. And if you had us, today your investment would be worth over 200,000 euros. And the point I'm making is if you're in your 30s, as I say, Wendy, and you've got 20, 30 years to go before you're going to retire, that's going to happen on average about five times, six times. And you need to just keep working through it and expect you're, it. You're in it for the long haul, in other words, then. Absolutely. And noise, day-to-day -day noise, and investing, day-to-day -day noise happens all the time. It sells newspapers, but it's not your friend. Don't worry about it. 
you've a long way to go. Owen, good advice there. Thanks so much for joining us on Spirit Radio this morning. That is Owen McGee from Prosperous Financial. Also, just to let you know, if you want to catch this crowded house, it's still up on the RTE player if you want to take a look at it there. And as Owen mentioned there, his new show, How to Be Good with Money, where he is flying solo, is going to be on RTE on the 10th of January. So we'll give you a reminder of that closer to the time. I think probably everybody listening would share this sentiment that we really want to share our faith with young people and that I, I tell you about experience actually I had at the weekend when I was in Mass is a family Mass that I go to and it's really lovely because the children are really part of you know reading the, the reading the scripture and all that sort of stuff anyway the part of the Mass where they the priest says, and everybody says the Our Father together the kids go up on the altar I still remember that from being a child and loving it and I bring Matthew up every every Sunday and I was really heartened because there were so many young kids there. And I thought, I just had this prayer at the time. I thought, wow, these, are these this is the future of the church. These young people, these are the future. That's prayer number one. And then prayer number two is, okay, how are we going to help them? How are we going to encourage them? How are we going to, you know, help them along the way in the intervening years? Well, youth ministry, I think, plays a huge part in that. So how do we then empower those people who have a heart for youth ministry who are working in kind of youth leadership roles are we doing enough to do that well in County Wicklow Scripture Union are holding a weekend event for youth ministry leaders it's going to be on in January the 11th to 13th and that's the aim they want to say hey can we actually help you guys can we equip you and and help you to be able to share your faith with young people it's called Momentum the Christian Youth Leaders Weekend and in studio to tell us more we have Johnny Somerville Johnny good morning to you how are you doing well, you are energetic for this Monday morning, which is great. And that's probably one thing that somebody working in youth ministry needs is energy and positivity. Well, I haven't seen you in a long time. I haven't been in this seat in a while, so it's just good to be back. It's been too long since you've been in Spirit Radio. For people, people might recognise Johnny's voice. Many, many moons ago when I was doing the nighttime shows, Johnny used to come on for the Counterculture Club, coming on seven years ago now. So, And it's great that you're, you're still working for, uh, working in youth ministry, helping yeah, young people along the way. Union. It's been a decade. I've been in youth ministry now for a decade. Isn't that mad? And you still look as young as ever. So obviously the work is happening. Keep keep that baby face for you, Johnny. So tell us a little bit about just youth ministry in Ireland at the moment. Does it need a bit of an injection or is there a lot of kind of really good young people who just, they need to be kind of equipped with better skills to be able to do the work they want to do? Oh, it needs an injection. It it needs a lot of stuff. Um, what the encouraging thing that I'm finding at the moment, having been around for a while working with Scripture Union, um, the collaboration that's going on is very encouraging. So even this event called Momentum, it has like eight organizations behind it. So we're all coming together, effectively dropping our labels to have a common goal. And so this is a kind of cross-denominational thing where you're saying, exactly. hey, look, we're all trying to do different things. We're all ultimately trying to do the same thing, which is share our faith with young people. Is it about just learning, you know, what's working in different places and, and, and helping, you know, where there's deficit, you know? Yeah, I think the first thing is is connection. So actually connecting people with other people they may not know who's around. So we don't want this to be just an East Coast thing. This invitation for Momentum is for the whole nation. And we already have people coming from, you know, north, south, east and west. But uh, for I suppose from all the resources that we have, the experience we have, um, we just want to share. 
we want to anyone like and particularly lay people we want as many lay people to rise up and volunteer within youth ministry uh, and to show them that it is not too difficult um there are many great re- many great resources at the moment to use uh, but there's just some underlying principles that if you if you can grasp them you will enjoy doing youth ministry and effectively all youth ministry is is walking alongside young people and yes that takes time so you got to volunteer it takes consistency so you got to stick at it um but yeah this weekend is is a chance to learn some basics meet some incredible people and um find the resources you need maybe just to get going because i know there are there are so many lay people out there who want to make a difference they don't know how and so we want to equip. I think you're right. There's just so many people in churches and parishes across the country that if you ask them that, yeah, I really would love to be able to help young people more. But there's a kind of feeling of um, almost, well, what's the point? Or I don't know, a bit of apathy or something there because you maybe aren't seeing enough young people yet when you look in the right places, you can see there's a lot of vibrant things happening almost underground. You've got to look hard, you know, in different Christian circles and that. Um, But... Is it a case of giving people confidence in a way? I think there's a fear. Some 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 folk might fear working with young people. How can I relate? Um, why would they want to have anything to do with me? I might be a 20-something. I might be a 30-something. I might be a 40-something. That's uh, never been my experience. Like I've worked What's with... What's your experience been? Well, even if I was to look at a lot of my school Google work that I've done, right? And so sometimes I'd be building teams. Uh, sometimes those teams were of people who were only available time-wise. And some of those people ended up being particularly, let's say, of an older generation, 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds coming in to say, do like an alpha with me, right? They loved it and the kids loved them. There was never a, you know, of course, some of the conversations might not have the same tact as you would, but say a young 20-year-old or whatever. But because these these older people were willing to listen, engage, find out what's going on in their lives. It, like even simply just listening, you know, if you put yourself in a position where you're just willing to listen to young people uh, and be understanding about where they're at, the connection will be there and you'll find uh, that it wasn't as as hard or scary as you first thought. Do you think also there's a wrong assumption? We did an interview there a few weeks ago about research that I think Christ in Youth had done talking to young people in universities where... Um, people might be surprised to learn that they're saying we are we want to know about faith we do want to know about God and I think people wrongly think oh young people aren't interested people are very interested um, now we may struggle at times to have really good conversations because I think we're still learning how to talk with people who have different ideas and you know even on our own national broadcast programs you can see debating sometimes is, is a real tricky thing to master but um i do believe that young people really want to know your authentic story and if your faith is real to you they want to know why it's real Uh, they don't just want to be told what to do but they want to know why faith makes a difference because ultimately that's what's interesting um and as much as i love the church i'm part of a church and i want young people to go to church it's not just about getting bums on pews it is about connection uh, we want young people to meet God for themselves. We want them to be the encounter. Uh, but we want them, yeah, just to see that my life as a Christian and Wendy, your life as a Christian, like it does make a difference daily. It's it's something that if 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 we were to lose our faith, we would be losing the core essence then of who we are. It's It's very much entangled in life, not just in church participation or in turning up to X, X, Y, or Z. You're so right. It's something that, especially um, with things like having small children and 
marriage and stuff like that, I often wonder, gosh, how do people do this without faith, you know, when I'm having a bedside vigil at three o'clock in the morning or praying mm. for patience or, or whatever the case may be. So in terms of then momentum itself from the 11th to the 13th of January, what can attendees expect, especially if they've never been to something like this before? Well, you can expect a whole weekend down in Script Union's Avoca Manor. Beautiful. beautiful yeah. It's a beautiful place um, down in Avoca Village in County Wicklow. Uh, the cost is only €40 Euro if you're waged or 20 if you're unwaged or a student. We're literally just asking you to pay for food. Um, we don't want this to be a... a it's not a cost prohibitive cost prohibitive we want you to be there if you have any interest in youth ministry or want to get going come along um we if you are an individual in a remote area please come but we are asking where as much as possible people come in twos or threes uh from a specific location because we do want to start a momentum wherever where they're people at can kind of work together find people yeah, they yeah, know. and exactly. it's, what might be great about it is because this is kind of a cross-denominational thing that people will make new friends and meet new people and go okay you're do, you're actually really close to me and let's work on something together yeah um greg Fromholz, who has been in youth ministry for over 20 years here in ireland he is the keynote speaker and he's going to be talking about what he has learned and the core principles of youth ministry and then we have incredible workshops from the organizations that are represented from mental health to how do you get going to how do you deal with difficult people um great food it's going to be a cafe uh, there'll be some games and banter but just it's a very affordable weekend you're going to be in the company of very well experienced youth workers and we just want to give and equip it sounds like it's going to be a brilliant weekend and it's for it's it's not just for people who are working kind of full time and it's Absolutely people who not. want, want yeah, to yeah. help in their local church or it's whatever. It's for them too, it's, but yes, it's for... It's for everybody really exactly, who yes. says, I want to try and share the faith with young people. Yeah. Including young people themselves, by the way. 20s, 30s, that's Anyone over young. 18, very welcome. Very good. Okay, I've been talking to Johnny Somerville from Scripture Union and we've been talking about Momentum Ireland. The website is MomentumIreland.com and it's taking place from the 11th to the 13th of January. All the details are on that website. At the end of the day, as Johnny said, they just want you to, to turn up to learn, to be equipped so you can, you can, you can inspire young people and indeed probably yourself and make new friends too while you're at it. It's just 40 euros for the weekend for all your food and accommodation if you're working and 20 euros if you're not. Johnny, thanks so much for joining Thank us you. on Spirit Radio this morning. There was an extraordinary general meeting of the Irish College of General Practitioners at the weekend. Many GPs attended, hundreds I believed, and there are issues that they feel their voices haven't been heard ahead of the introduction of abortion services in January. It was reported that some GPs walked out of the meeting while on the line to tell us a little bit about the purpose of that meeting and indeed what happened at the meeting. I have GP and indeed GP lecturer Dr Andrew O'Regan on the line. Good morning Dr O'Regan. Good morning Wendy. So tell us about this meeting yesterday, what happened? So I guess, first of all, Wendy, the the reason that we had an extraordinary general meeting yesterday in our College of General Practitioners was it was a a result of five months of members asking the college to convene a meeting like this so that our views would be heard. And the bottom line is that up until now, Minister Harris has not engaged with general general practitioners about this really important issue of of abortion being, being rolled out at the start of next month. And it's actually incredible when you think about it that he expects GPs to carry out most of the abortions, but he's never sat down and talked to us. All he has done is spoken to our board, um, and our board are a very small group who we feel have failed to represent us in their discussions with the minister. And as a result, when the um, 650 GPs signed the petition 
looking for this EGM yesterday. The EGM came and it was an opportunity, we hoped, to um, really tackle the issues in an open and transparent way. But it failed massively to do that. So what happened then? What were you hoping for and what actually transpired? So what we were hoping for, you know, if we think about what an EGM is in terms of any organisation, it's a chance for members to debate uh, topics and to vote on them. So what we were hoping for was a democratic process where members would stand up and put motions forward that had been given in writing several weeks ago to the College Board. And these motions were around substantive issues such as you know, should um, general practice facilitate abortions in the first place? We know that that's not the case in almost every other European country, that it doesn't happen in general practice. So we wanted that basic issue debated and voted on. We wanted to vote on other important issues such as freedom of conscience. But we were told from the outset there will be no votes. We asked in as, in, in as civilised way as we possibly could that you know, the only reason the meeting was happening in the first place is because the members petitioned for it and that rather than the board speak to the members, that maybe the, the board would listen to the members and listen to our concerns. Um, we asked the board if we could take a vote on whether we could have votes and debates and that too was shut down. So it became apparent at that stage that the board were insistent that there would not be a democratic process at the CGM, that it would just be a group of GPs talking to each other over and back. And we feel that this, we really felt at this stage that a talking shop was just meaningless. So we decided that there was no further, further purpose in remaining in the meeting and over 100 of us left the meeting as a result. And in terms of what happens next, and that was obviously a, a protest saying, I mean, it must be quite disheartening for you, Dr. Regan, that your representative group isn't listening to you. What is behind that? You haven't been listened to by the health minister. Um, you not being listened to would appear uh, by the by the the body that's meant to represent you. Why not? Uh, yes, it is hugely disappointing because we must remember that. This, this College of General Practitioners, it's still our college. It, it's a college that belongs to all the GPs. And I keep saying that, you know, we, we us GPs that left, we want what's best for general practitioners and uh, for our, our female patients as well, indeed for all our patients. So just to, to get that out there. But why, why, um, why the rush by our board to acquiesce to the minister's demands uh, and to not involve the membership in negotiations? It, very, very difficult question to answer. Wendy, I, w- I would suggest that um, the board may have been swayed by a very uh, strong pro-choice presence. Um, I would also suggest um, that the board has possibly been, um, I, I would say, probably forced in one way to uh, come to meetings quickly with the minister and never actually took the time to seek out what its membership actually felt about us. So I think it, it, there's, there's a couple of things going on there. It's very, very hard to understand what has happened, but what I can say is that we're at a very, very, very difficult time now in general practice, uh, and yesterday was a huge, huge disappointment to us. The Minister for Health, Simon Harris, did tweet, I presume, in response to what happened yesterday at the EGM. He says, Dr Regan, that basically the conscientious objection right can't be trumped by a women's right to have what he calls health care and that the people have spoken and the campaign is over. What, how do you feel about that response? Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, this is the sort of mantra that gets um, you know, put out time after time after time and 
I guess the strategy behind it is is that if it's said often enough, people might just accept it and not think about what's being said there. Um, but it's really quite uh, disingenuous for a minister who would, who would, who would you would think have access to so much expertise and knowledge that he would he would repeatedly say that. So let's look at what he's saying. He's saying that doctors must uh, make arrangements uh, for the transfer of care for a woman uh, who wants to have an abortion. And this is this is completely contrary uh, to the way medicine should be practiced. His definition of what abortion is is that it would be a procedure to end the life of of of, uh, of a baby. Um, doctors didn't sign up for that, and I think what the minister really needs to do now is consider what message he's sending out to doctors. It's certainly not one of respect, and it's certainly not one of tolerance. And I, I've said it already, but all doctors want to do the best for their patients. We work very hard to try and get the best outcome from our patients, and the way we do that in any consultation is that if a woman is in a challenging or in a very difficult situation, we work through the list of various options. And when they, I'm sure you've heard before doctors saying on radio and possibly personal conversations, you know, how rewarding it is when somebody comes back to us after being in a really dark place and considering an abortion. They go and they meet their GP. It's happened with me. We spend the time with the woman and the woman sees that there is hope, there is support there, and they can go and and have their baby. And and that's what the minister is cutting out. He's, he's forcing GPs into a, a fast track, a fast track approach, a conveyor belt approach, where we won't have time to think about what we're doing, but we just send the woman on, send the woman on to the next stage in the knowledge that one of our own patients is going to be killed as a result of it. That's not something I'm going to do, and it's not something that many hundreds of my colleagues is going to do either. I think rather than the minister repeatedly um, putting out these tweets, it might be much more professional and fitting of his status for, to actually, for him to actually meet with the doctors that he seems to have you know, such, such plans for. So what's going to happen next then, Dr. O'Regan? I guess... Um, <clears throat> You know, what, what's going to happen next is is that we'll be trying everything that we can to ensure that there's a democratic process in our own college. So one avenue that we will be going down is to request a, yet another EGM from our college. Um, the last EGM was, um, I would say, upscuttled a little bit because the college claimed we didn't have wet signatures, that we had electronic signatures for the EGM. So we, we'll go and we'll, we'll, we'll deliver... Um, letters to people, uh, to the membership, asking them to, to sign up for this. We would welcome any uh, any negotiations and any um, any sign of tolerance from either the minister uh, and, of course, from within our own college as well. That we would much prefer uh, to see unity and to see you know a meaningful interaction going forward. And if that comes our way, we would welcome it. But it, it, anything that any offer of negotiations or any offer of, of of trying to understand this further has to have purpose. It cannot be just a talk shop with no tangible outcome. And we'd be very careful about saying that. January, it's a very short time away when GPs are meant to be providing abortion services. Are you worried? I'm very worried. Um, very worried, Wendy, on, on, on several levels. Worried that this, this, this is not going to be um, done properly, that there will be serious safety issues. Uh, around the abortion itself, not to mention safety of the of the unborn baby, but the safety of the women as well. 
Um, I don't think this has been taught through properly. There are so many unanswered questions. I think it's it's really important as well that we remember that we have record high waiting lists for hospital appointments across all specialties. We have record high waiting times in our emergency departments where we have elderly patients waiting on trolleys. And what the minister is now doing is feisting abortion onto an already overstretched system. And I have serious concerns about the safety and the impact this will have on primary care in this country. Dr. Andrea Regan, thanks so much for joining us on Spirit Radio this morning. Thanks for listening to our Spirit Radio podcast. Don't miss out. Subscribe today. Find out how at spiritradio.ie.